think we all come in with our with our truth and I mean I think we come in telling stories and obviously like the rep you choose the repertoire the literature reflects values right reflects stories you want to tell and uplift so certainly mm-hmm. like I think if you if you look at some of the rep I've chosen it reflects I don't know if it reflects my politics per se as much as it reflects I want to make sure we're hearing lots of different voices and are those voices political sure but Life is political. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special Friday roundtable episode for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. All of us here are going to try to pretend it's Friday. Um, But (laughs) regardless, it's a Saturday when we're doing this. I can reveal the behind the scenes. It still is that weekend energy. So I'm really excited because this is the first time I think I'm ever having someone from a political background um, who runs a grassroots activist network. So it's very exciting to first be joined by my guest co-host, Sarah Slotnick, who I've known for a little while. So hi, Sarah. Hi, Andrew. Thank Uh, you. And Sarah, if you want to uh, announce uh, where you teach. Hi, um, I'm Sarah Slotnick, uh, she, her pronouns. I am a social studies teacher within the New York City Department of Education. And in my spare time, I enjoy reading, writing, and um, being in nature as much as possible. So thank you, Andrew, for um, the privilege of having me be able to co-host. And thank you, uh, Shoshana, for being you. Yes, yes, well, Sarah revealed the surprise guest, but that's okay. (laughs) Because <laughs> you all saw the title of the episode. Um, but I am joined with Shoshana Hershkowitz, who I've known Shoshana, well, I've known her name for at least five years. But I think Shoshana and I built a relationship maybe two years ago. Uh, so first, Shoshana is a music educator, the founder of Suffolk Progressives, and also was talking about working for citizens. If you want to remind me, Shoshana. Citizen Action of New York. Thank you. Well, that is Shoshana Hershkowitz, everyone. Citizen Action of New York. Shoshana, you just embody what I think is a great mentor for thinking about teaching, activism, um, and just bringing all of your authenticity to the work you do. So thank you so much for joining Sarah and I for what's going to be a wonderful roundtable. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, so I think first, I'm just curious, how did Suffolk Progressives start? Because that's how I first learned about your work. So it started, um, you know, I think it's a really common story. You know, the aftermath of the 2016 election, a lot of people who were really devastated and feeling like they didn't know what to do And I had, you know, looked into my local democratic committee and joined, but wasn't getting much as far as like, here are next steps. Here's how we move forward from this, this mess. This is the plan. And after doing a lot of asking around, wasn't getting much. And I read the indivisible guide. And when I read that and realized that, you know, so much of it was going to be about average everyday citizens on the ground, pushing back in small and big ways. I just sort of was like, oh, I'll start a Facebook group with me and my friends. And it just sort of, you know, mushroomed out of that. But it was, you know, just like at my kitchen table on my laptop on some like snow day. I was like, all right, I guess we'll just make a group. And here we are. Wow. From a Facebook group. No, but see, that's the power of 
the grassroots is really just someone having an idea, needing to find a community voice. Um, and just because usually um, I don't like politics, I think politics are always personal and are always in our dialogue, even if someone's not taking a political stand, um, especially in teaching. So like, how do you, like, how do you find Suffolk progressives? And maybe if you just want to give the audience a little more background, like how do you, is there a mission statement for Suffolk progressives that you would describe? Yeah, I mean, for me, and it's part of why I started it because I was going on this journey of figuring out how do you as an engaged, become an engaged member of society, you know, and I, so I would say citizen, but you know, not everyone who's engaged is a citizen. So I would say just an engaged member of society who cares about issues and uses their voice to, to speak up and to take action as opposed to, you know, what I think a lot of us were doing, myself included, watching and reading and being more passive about it and being upset by it, but not necessarily having skin in the game. And, and that was really the mission statement was to figure out with like-minded people, how do we make ourselves heard? How do we advocate for what we believe in as ordinary people who aren't necessarily on the inside of the political game? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, how long have you been in music education? Because I know you have a long career in that. Yeah, sphere. 23 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel, wait, Sarah, are you raising your hand? Oh, you don't I, have to raise your hand, Sarah. We just jump in in the podcast. I appreciate, but see, that's how you know knows. we're in education. But no, go for it, Sarah. Hey, um, I just wanted to uh, jump in and say that um, I met Shoshana when I was an undergrad at Stony Brook University when I joined Stony Brook Corral. And I think that there's something to say when all these years later, you're still in touch with your choir director who is more than a choir director. So thank you, Shoshana. Oh, mm -hmm. like that's the best part of teaching is the relationships. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And yeah, well, do you want to speak more to that, Shoshana? Because I really feel that's what brought me to the university for a PhD program was really the teachers that, I had in the humanities and in the sciences, like those who just shaped my trajectory. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that we as educators have such, there's such responsibility in creating a space that is safe and is nurturing and allows, allows you to have, you know, what a good friend of mine, who's the founder of the Women's Diversity Network, my friend Shaniqua always says courageous conversations. And mm -hmm. And I think we get to do that, particularly in the humanities. I mean, I'm sure it can happen and does happen in the sciences, but my perspective is the humanities. So that's where I'll speak to. And I think one of the things I love about being a choir director is the fact that we're, you know, not only dealing with sound, we're dealing with text and mm. we get to go to so many places. And I, I think I've become a real connoisseur of literature because I sing, you know, I mean, I think mm -hmm. I've just, I, there are so many poets I've gotten to, you know, spend time with and stories and pieces of history I've gotten to spend time with because I sing. And I see it, you know, teaching as a vehicle for having courageous conversations, for presenting context and stories that, you know, sometimes you can read them on a page, but when you sing them, it, it goes to a different place. And I think it can touch people in a different way. And it's, it's I think, why I love what I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, and... I mean, there's so much happening right now. 
as there always seems to be um, in news. Um, but, you know, especially I want everyone listening to know, I feel like I should have a disclaimer that, you know, when you see a documentary, these opinions, you know, reflect those of the individuals, but it's true. I think each of us have very unique positionalities, like whether it be our identities, whether it be, you know, being part of an LGBTQ community or, you know, a female perspective. So I want to acknowledge all of that. And I think, right, when we come into a classroom, especially now, I really feel this weight of um, difficult conversations that I want to have, but also knowing there's going to be pushback. And that's actually not a problem. Like, I actually see pushback as a moment of transformation, right? I think it depends what the pushback is. I'll say that the language that's used from your students. But like when I've had certain experiences, like I think it's completely okay. And you being with Suffolk Progressive, Shoshana, I know you've seen and heard all different kinds of language and pushback, but, um, and maybe you wanna get into that if it's productive. Um, but yeah, how do we, each of us, like see ourselves as educators and opening up those difficult conversations, but also knowing there's probably going to be vulnerability of even ourselves in those moments. Mm. There, Suffolk Progressives has been such a learning curve in that regard, because I think that you want to, a lot of times, particularly since so much of it happens in written form, and I think conversations that happen in person can go a very different way. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I think that when people say things that can be, can come across as hurtful. One of the things I noticed in the Suffolk progressive space is that that's a teachable moment. And I think sometimes on the internet that becomes a cancel moment, you know, when everyone jumps and I'm sort of like, wait, hold on. If we use this as a teachable moment, somebody can change, someone can. And I think the problem with the internet is that it's so immediate mm -hmm. that everyone's at each other. And it's hard to have, I always try to view that as an online classroom and it didn't, it's not always successful, but I always try to like, you know, I think about my very first boss who is like past 80 now, when I was a 22 year old teacher, he said, Shoshana, you always have to give a kid an out, never put a kid's back up against the wall, always give them a way out. He's like, you may not, they may not take it, but give it to them. And I always try to like honor that perspective in the classroom on Suffolk progressives mm -hmm. in my life is give somebody an out before you, you know, go to that place because you might be able to find some like point of reconciliation or moving forward from there. And it gives people dignity. Doesn't always work, but I try. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know we each all probably now are thinking and all the educators out there are like, oh, I remember that moment or this moment or, but I, you know, can reflect on just something that happened to me when I taught in the fall. And it was, using Whitman, but using his um, questionable racial politics, to put it lightly. Um, some may call him having racist statements, um, but also having such queer power as a poet. So, right, it's not like, sometimes it can be very gray. Um, you could be a queer martyr of a poet, but you could also have very um, racist um, ideology. Actually, I would say this happens um, ha happens a lot because of privilege, but it looks like, yeah, Sarah, jump in. And I'd say uh, to piggyback off of what Andrew's saying, this is why intersectionality is so important. 
um, taking a look at the multifaceted characteristics that make up who we are, whether that is gender identity, sexual orientation, our race, ethnicity. And this is why I am such a fan of um, folks such as um, James Baldwin and the work, um, the essays and the literature um, that he has written and reflecting on that. Um, all these years later, well, it's really not as well, it's like 50 years, but taking a look at to what extent have we as a, as a society changed or not changed? Yeah, no, no, thank you for that, Sarah. And Absolutely. Well, and like what you're saying, Shoshana, about that online dynamic, this is what sparked my memory, is the whole course was questioning the poet of democracy. Like, so whatever text or I brought in hairspray, I brought in all different kinds of media. Um, to talk about queer of color dynamics, social class, religion, feminist discussions. Um, and there was never really a lot of pushback, which was interesting to me in person. Maybe it was because we were coming back for the first time in person. So I think like I've seen from the spring to the fall and I know Shoshana, I've seen how exciting it was to have your students back there for so corral yeah. and right. so. I think people were kind of relearning that dynamic, but it wasn't until my course evaluation that I actually had um, just one student. There's always, you know. There's always one. Always one, but it was interesting to me how much they thought me bringing in LGBTQ authors was me making a political stance of who I'm against in politics. And I was like, wait, did that ever happen? And I'm like, oh no, they're just, they're reacting to the texts that were assigned. But I'm thinking that there was never a debate about that in class. And I'm like, that would have been a really interesting moment about why is something that's assigned a reflection of who, what your political stance is. So yeah, it was. That is, well, yeah. I, mean, I think we all come in with our, with our truth. And I mean, I think we come in telling stories and obviously like the rep you choose, the repertoire, the literature, it reflects values, right? It reflects stories you want to tell and uplift. So certainly, mm -hmm. like, I think if you, if you look at some of the rep I've chosen, it reflects, I don't know if it reflects my politics per se, as much as it reflects, I want to make sure we're hearing lots of different voices. And are those voices political? Sure, but life is political. And I think that like everyone trying to say mm -hmm. it's not is, it's a lie. You can't, you, when we talk about morals and values and people's lived experience, you cannot pretend to any of that is apolitical because politics does shape that trajectory. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know I'm going to open up the can of worms, Shoshana, but um, like that comment that I did get on the evaluation, and I have to say, because I have a lot of students who listen, which is wonderful. I'm glad they listen to this podcast. Um, it was one opinion, right? So the majority we're learning, we were, we're always learning together, I think, in a classroom dynamic, is you entering that space, just like when you're in the performing arts, you enter the space ready to grow and ready for what's going to come at you. And you're going to be changed by that experience for the better, is my, my teaching hope. mission. We yeah. hope. Yeah. But, um, you know, I remember watching Board of Ed meetings, especially Long Island, but I've seen some Jersey. I'm from New Jersey originally from a town called Washington Township near Cherry Hill, shout out. Um, very large school district. I went to school with over 700 students in my class. Um, so I watched their board of ed meetings because I was just curious, is this 
something that's only Long Island specific about critical it, race it, theory backlash it's or now. it's natural. It is. But I was actually happy because my school was one of those who appointed a diversity, equity, inclusion director. That's and true. I would see a lot of parents actually like say they wanted more LGBTQ material. They wanted more people of color represented. And it was only a very few who said like transphobic statements or like things in my opinion that didn't talk about material, but talked about came from a fear mongering response. So, I mean, I'm sure you've been at a lot of board of ed meetings, Shoshana, how, like, where is the state of these discussions right now? You know, I think you have a group of people that are convinced there is some sort of, you know, that, that are convinced that bringing diverse perspectives is political and it shouldn't be. I mean, you know, the way I see it is if we want kids to feel seen and respected and feel like they are part of the community, they should be represented in the materials mm -hmm. that they learn, you know, and history as it happens should be taught. And hundred percent. yeah, like to me, that's not political. That's just teaching. Unfortunately, Agreed. there's a, you know, I think it's, it, it is a national movement that has said, this is political mm. and that has turned it into a parental control parents rights narrative. So parents are saying, well, I want to control what my kid learns and I want a choice. And you do have a choice. You have a choice whether to send your child to public school or not. That's your choice. Yeah. But you don't get to say this is what the New York State Education Department should or shouldn't teach. And I think that that's, that's the issue here is people, one, don't understand how the system works. And two, don't understand um, what the purpose of education itself is. And it is to open your, your mind up to all sorts of things. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. Like when I was in college, you know, in undergrad, and I'll never forget, it was my second semester of my sophomore year, um, music history. And we get to Wagner. Hmm. And Wagner was a known anti-Semite. He was a composer for the Third Reich. Like, and I'm the only Jewish kid in the class because I'm in rural Northern New York. And I'll never forget what it felt like to be in that room. I remember what the room looked like. I remember the lighting. I remember where I sat. And the teacher saying, introducing Wagner, and we're listening to Wagner for the understanding of what was his, you know, what were his contributions to music, which despite who he was as a person, his, his musical contributions need to be studied if you're a musician. You need to know what he did and what his sound is like and the opera, the ring cycle. You need to know that. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to like it, but you do need to know it. And I remember the teacher going through all this and then him saying, unfortunately, alongside these great musical contributions, Wagner was an anti-Semite. And me being the only Jewish kid in the room, he kind of looks at me and I look at him and I put my head back down. And I remember just feeling alone. And whenever I think about that, I think about being, what is it like to be the one black kid in the class, the one Hispanic kid in the class, you know, maybe you're the only LGBTQ or indigenous kid in the class. And I remember mm -hmm. what that felt like. And I think about that a lot when I'm in front of my classroom of, you know, as we, as we talk about things, how are, what space are we giving kids and do they feel safe? And do they, you know, how do we grapple with all of that? And I think that education isn't supposed to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, the only way you get better and learn more is to be uncomfortable. And was I uncomfortable in that moment in that classroom? I mean, the teacher handled it well, but yeah, it's upsetting to, to know the anti-Semitism of Wagner, but I also can't cancel what I am uncomfortable with. Like I had to sit through that music history class 
and I had to be able to identify the, you know, style characteristics of Wagner. I may never sing it, I may never perform it, and that's a choice I can make as an, as, as an artist. But as a student, I have to know that stuff. And I think that what we're seeing in this parents' rights movement is, you know, would be the equivalent of me trying to cancel Wagner. Uh, no, that is so helpful. Well, thank you for that, that that's example from your it. life. Yeah. yeah. And well, it also is why I think we should have a type of allyship teaching, which is like, I don't want to be the only openly gay English, you know, professor who teaches queer studies or who teaches LGBTQ authors, right? Because I do see in the university, there can be a lot of tokenizing of faculty, like because of your identity, that's what you're going to teach, which I love teaching LGBTQ literature. But at the same time, I do teach, you know, I like to discuss whether it be um, feminist authors, whether it be Jewish authors, um, you know, I have my own history with Judaism, but we, that's for a different podcast. Um, when we go uh, into my ancestry. I think all three of us can, can weigh in on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But, yeah. Uh, Andrew, next podcast on Judaism and a roundtable conversation. There we go. Yes, let's do it. You can call it two Jews, three opinions or three Jews, six opinions. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the Falsettos musical that opens up with, I think it's four Jews in a room bitching. Yeah, that's the opening number. Oh, and don't worry, you can curse on this episode just in case you didn't know. Um, But my whole point with that is just like even just teaching, you know, if I teach Emma Lazarus and I love her poem, The New Colossus, you can get into interesting discussions about why that was shown at the Statue of Liberty. What does it mean for immigration? How does it speak to women's rights and her view as a Jewish woman in New York. And it's so interesting to me that when it's shaped like that for the students, how many students of mine never read a Jewish author or even never thought about it in terms of religion. And like that's doesn't just have to come from your identity. It just means you're opening up these conversations. But I will say, like, how would you all weigh in about being prepared for that conversation, right? Like, not just teaching James Baldwin to fill a quota. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to have you all read the fire next time essay. Mm-hmm. But like, what's going to happen when the students come to you with questions? Like, to handle those questions is, you know, a wait to be ready for. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, how do you... Like, how do you both? Yeah, yeah, go, Sarah, for it. I think, um, first and foremost, it comes down to, you know, regardless of if you're at the university level, um, high school, uh, middle school, um, establishing that space to have these, um, as we call, courageous conversations and really making sure that we're all aware that no two people are going to have the same exact viewpoints or opinions, and also that uh, multiple truths or realities can coexist. And I think that's something that folks might be uncomfortable with, 
Uh, but going back to what Andrew and Shoshana said with pushing back um, uh, with this discomfort is how we learn. And what my fear is that with these attacks on public education in places such as Long Island, New Jersey, really throughout the United States is by attempting to ban or censor these, these conversations, what message is that sending to young developing students and their brains who have access to social media, TikTok, the news, who are reading about what's going on and have questions and by don't say gay, um, you know, wanting to, uh, first of all, conflating DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion with critical race theory. And I just feel like this whole movement is fear-driven because they're afraid of these courageous conversations that we're even having right now. Yeah. I will yeah. also say the kids are far better equipped than the adults. And I mean, I yes. like, I, when I, and then that's been <laughs> yes. in high school classrooms and yeah. collegiate classrooms and even middle school, like Sarah said, when I've like mm -hmm. get conducted in all county, I see it with my own children. I have, you know, elementary and junior high age kids. They are mm -hmm. more than capable. And hundred you know, percent. They're, and they're so open. Yeah. They're so yeah. open and there's so much, you know, I, like I say that I say to my students all the time, like, I just think the world is such a different one than when I was in high school, mm. you know, where, my, you know, I always say my best friend in high school was gay and we all mm -hmm. knew it, but none of us ever talked about it. Mm -hmm. He never brought it up. Like, no, it was just an unspoken. We don't talk about it. And in college, I had professors who in right, I found out later, you know, as adults, like had been, you know, in long-term relationships, but didn't disclose it. So because they didn't want, you know, their career to be destroyed, you know, or to like, you know, not get tenure because, you know, they had a same-sex partner and yeah. the world has changed in that regard in, in a really good way. And I think it's because we have access to information, you know, and I think people decry social media and the internet, and certainly it has its dark underbelly, but I also think it allows people to see that the world is bigger than their own zip code. And that the stuff they're experiencing where, where they may feel like, you know, in their small town, it's just them. It's not. And that, I, that I think gives kids in some ways, like some real hope if they're in a situation where they feel alone is mm -hmm. that access. And I, I think that that access is important. And I think it's why kids are often better than the adults in these situations. And I think it's also why some of their conservative parents are terrified. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And, um, you don't mind uh, me chiming in as a um, social studies teacher, I teach uh, ninth grade global history. And um, I received an email from one of my students back in February. Um, Ms. Lotnick, I noticed that you haven't spoken um, about Black History Month. And that whole email really, first of all, I have so much respect for that student for reaching out to me. and made me think that I'm so focused on getting through, you know, the New York State curriculum and getting them prepared for this exam and that exam, that sometimes we forget to take a step back and talk about what is really going on. What do students really want to talk about? So some of my favorite 
lessons are those standalone lessons. And um, I thank that student profusely for reaching out to me. Uh, we had a lesson on Black History Month and some of my favorite standalone lessons have been those lessons that aren't necessarily in that curriculum, but are what we call as, you know, three of us being educators, these teachable moments and, you know, making sure that students feel heard and seen is paramount to what we do. So I just wanted to share that uh, aside. No, and I, I want to point out the that. fact that your student felt like they could say that to you without fear of retribution mm -hmm. means you've created a space like where real, like real learning is happening. And that's, Thank you. that's, that's yes. no small feat. Thank yeah. you so much, Shoshana. Yeah. And I think like you talked about social media and that has been a really powerful tool, Shoshana, for like even educating with social media, which I know Sarah and Shoshana, like we all see each other a lot on social media. I've done a lot of like LGBTQ education videos. I think the podcast, I've incorporated it into my teaching, whether it be that my students get to ask Gregory Maguire questions about Wicked, or they get to hear from Broadway performers, or, you know, any author who I get to share space with, that it really matters a lot to pull back the behind the scenes that these artists are accessible. They're, you know, creating, they, you know, you're not just learning in a lecture room and there's no outside um, discussions happening. And like, in my opinion, it's what you do outside of my classroom that I'm more concerned about. Like, mm -hmm. are you carrying these lessons into your everyday life? Not like what will Andrew think or what will Andrew do, but more that it's not just me. I'm not just depositing information into your head because I don't believe in that lecture model. I believe more in shared community, shared discussions. Like what we're doing now is exactly the kinds of conversations I love having uh, with my students. But yeah, it's a, I'm not saying every educator needs to now become a social media <laughs> viral influencer <laughs> influencer exactly but I do think there's a lot of positives like you're saying Shoshana about representation if you can't mm -hmm. find that in your community oh yeah yeah I mean I bring in so many examples into the classroom I really that became much bigger during like the pandemic with online teaching yeah. when you know when you have to teach choir on zoom which like um would not recommend. I mean, we did a good job, but it's not, it's not, it's not the way it's meant to be. You know, when you can't hear anything, I was like, all right, how do we initiate dialogue and discussion and all of that stuff without being able to hear things and it happening organically? And I used a lot of media to do it. You know, like we did a lot of like, okay, let's do a real deep dive into like this Langston Hughes poetry and do a comparison and contrast, you wow. know, or let's look at this, you know, historically black choir performing this piece from the civil rights movement. I love and, like, that. Yeah. And like, yeah. if we can't do that work together, hearing one mm -hmm. another saying, how can we still find the vehicle? And, you know, it changed, it definitely sh like reshaped my teaching and refocused it. And even back in person now, I still do a lot of that because I was, it forced me to reevaluate. Was I doing enough? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think as educators, that's something we're always asking ourselves. Are we doing enough? And mm -hmm. through my own reflections, meditations, whatnot, I want to reframe that um, 
And just as educators and as human beings, just giving ourselves more compassion Mm -hmm. and realizing that we don't have to grind all day, every day, 24 seven and remembering um, to give ourselves grace is paramount. And I want to throw out this question regarding self-care. How important is it to practice self-care in our integration of teaching, activism, um, in your case, Shoshana, being a parent, a wife, all the the hats that we wear? Um, How do we integrate self-care into all that we do? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think we have to do it. I think it's just really hard. You know, I mean, I feel like when I don't, when I don't do a workout or when I don't like mm-hmm. get alone time, I feel it. Um, I, you know, it's funny because I think that like, I think the stress right now, especially is like two years ago, as awful as things were, it got very quiet. And I yes. know like- <laughs> Mm-hmm. I yes. really enjoyed the quiet. Me too. Like the, yeah, for the first time, I was like, you I can think. To, yeah, I was <laughs> like, I have nowhere to be. Like, it's just the four of us together all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, it was, it was great, actually. Like, it was so great. Mm-hmm. And I mean, other than the terror of like catching a deadly disease, but like, you know, in our house behind our, this was such a safe, beautiful haven. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was, I'll never forget it. And it's time we'll never get back. And now we're like back at it. And and I feel unsettled. Me too. Like really unsettled. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that, a lot yeah, of us. I don't know how to make it. sense of it right now. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's so important because, well, Sarah and I actually, I'll always remember last summer because we met up and it was like this mm-hmm. coming together with people you hadn't seen for a while, but yeah. also forming new relationships like Sarah and I hadn't really spent a lot of one-on-one time before the pandemic. And it was interesting for me to see that like now those who are in my community or even having you Shoshana here, like us planning this discussion that before the pandemic, I'm not sure like if all of our connections or all of our interests would have matched, like if we would have found Mm -hmm. our community. So I am really curious um, in a few years, like how much we're going to see of the new models that have been built from the pandemic. Cause there is so much, like you're saying about your teaching Shoshana, I see that too. Like what I have brought in, you know, social media, what I have brought in more film and TV and tried to make this like really just rethink why are we learning literature in the first place? 
And I think the pandemic really brought all of these questions in every subject Mm -hmm. to bear. I have to tell you, this semester, like, I had two really contrasting programs in my choirs. My my smaller group, we were doing all like living composers and they were definitely, you know, like it was a very DEI centric program. Like we had a, a black female composer. We did a, a movement from the oratorio considering Matthew Shepard. And we talked quite a bit about like Matthew Shepard's story. But my my larger choir, the chorale, were doing Mozart. Oh. And wow. I was sort of like, how do I make Mozart make sense right now? And, you know, I was still doing DEI stuff like we were doing during Black History Month. We would take like, like, you know, we, between things, we'd like watch a video, we would do some like spirituals and like stuff like that. And I, just Mm -hmm. to give them a sense, but a, a friend of mine who is really wonderful composer, she said, how can you make everything come from a humanistic perspective? And I was like, okay. And that was like my project for myself with Mozart was how do we make, you know, the stuff that feels really abstract um, and it's great music and it's important to be studied, mm-hmm. but how do you take this Eurocentric necessary component in the 21st century in a diverse classroom? And the couple of things I did, and it really, we went really text heavy. We went really deep into, um, you know, just the Catholic mass and like having sung it so many times, I know the translation by heart. And I was like, and talking about it from like, I'm not a believer, right? Like my mm-hmm. name is Shoshana Hershkowitz. But, like, <laughs> I understand this text and I live with it. And then just getting into like, you know, just conversations about it. Like Pontius Pilate, is he culpable? Is he like the Aaron Burr of the, of the Christ story? You know, like how, how, do we, how do we wrestle with somebody like that? And it came to, down to kids just being like, this was my religious experience. I went to Catholic school, you know, like and getting into like that. And it brought up a lot of stuff because mm-hmm. like some of my kids, I have a kid, kids from the LGBTQ community talking about their Catholic school experience, you know, and just, it went to so many different places. And then it was even just looking at Mozart because he wrote this mass when he was 12 and just sort of being like, okay, we hear the 12 year old in Mozart here because this, this music is so mercurial, right? Like every eight bars, he's changing moods. And like that as a parent of 12 year old, that is being 12, you know? And like, really trying to find the humanity and relevance of Mozart right now. And I felt like we succeeded, but that was like my big challenge this semester of like, yeah. how do you take, you know, I always call them the dead guys and make them, how do you make a dead guy relevant? I feel the same way with um, teaching history and integrating what you just talked about. Um, how do we make this relevant? And I love that you just brought that up. And Andrew, I'm sure you too, with um, teaching literature, how do we make the, the lives and lived experiences of people who are no longer with us relevant? Yeah, well, and a lot of that to me is a thematic question, mm-hmm. but that's how I approach it now is like more in like, even if you asked me to teach a Shakespeare course, that would be really exciting because there's been so many adaptations of like right now, I think Macbeth takes a more contemporary approach. I haven't, I want to see it eventually. Um, I think it's limited, so I need to get all that. But um, I will say it's definitely like Shoshana, you were kind of talking about, and I want to return to it. There's almost like trans, not transplanting, but a transformation happening with old pedagogical methods um, being supplanted. That's the word. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have seen that like in my own experience. 
especially with literature. For a while, when I was being taught, I'm sure all of us, like when you're supposed to do a literary analysis, you're not, you were taught not to look for yourself in the text. Like, it doesn't matter about yeah. the identity, right? It's an objective, like, it's objective and it doesn't matter. You're just reading dead white men. Um, but I've actually found, like you've said, how you've approached your um, music students. There is something so immediate with someone finding their identity or just resonating with a theme in any art that they're exposed to. And I don't think it's as simple as saying, don't find your identity, because that's actually really um, harmful, in my opinion, because, you know, who are you privileging in that statement? Like, mm -hmm. and who are you teaching? Um, but yeah, I, that's just something I keep returning to because I won't call it like a educational culture war, but I will say there is some tension right now with oh, that totally. framework. And I mean, I even think that pre-pandemic, I was doing this piece with my other choir, smaller group um, of music from apartheid South Africa. And we were watching a contemporary choir singing it in South Africa and, you know, biracial mixed race choir and talking about like one, that is something that clearly speaks to times changing because like when that music was, you know, conceived of like that, the idea of a biracial choir singing that was, you know, it was literally the antithesis of it. And one of my students said, they're doing all of these gestures, you know, as they're singing, like, you know, raising their hands at some point. And they're like, should we be doing that? And I said, that's a good question. And they're like, well, is that cultural appropriation? Mm. And we got into a really long discussion about like, well, what is cultural appropriation as mm. a predominantly white choir? Why do we sing this music? What's the point? And we got into like a lot of like, you know, and where I fall on cultural appropriation is if you're not doing the research, if you're not like learning the context, if you don't understand why you do the hand raising, then it's cultural appropriation. But if you've gotten into like the meat of like, this is why, this is what it means. This is how the gesture, where it came from. Then if mm. you make that artistic choice, then it's an informed one. Mm. And that we went back and forth. And in the end, we chose not to use the gestures even as we were singing, but it was a really like, we, we went back and forth for a while and it was, it was really good. And, that, and, I, and I think that that's the type of conversations we have to have in the room, particularly like as a predominantly white choir singing South African music. Yeah. You don't mind me chiming in real yeah. quick, uh, going back to my memories as um, undergraduate, even a graduate student at, at Stony Brook, um, being on the path to becoming um, a teacher, a teacher of social studies. I have the fondest memories of Monday night sitting in Shoshana's choir in the alto section, shout out to my altos, and having these conversations mid song or, you know, maybe we would pause and I just have the fondest memories of that. And um, these are the moments that we remember. And I, try to organically do that as much as possible in my class having these teachable moments that aren't necessarily in the lesson plan but things that organically happen maybe a student has a question and that opens a portal for a new discussion and 
having students bounce off of what that first student said. And there's something so powerful, um, but also humbling about being the facilitator for that. And it's, it's an honor. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that to like transition into, you know, Sarah mentioned self-care and I think like for me, it's more about recharging. I actually like the term recharging a little more than self-care for my own experience. Not because I'm like trying to dismantle the term self-care. You're too cool, Andrew. No, no, I don't. But like, I always find that I kind of need to nest with my ideas and like recharge my thinking of when I'm around a lot of different, whether it be a lot of people or a lot of topics, being out and about, especially now, right? I kind of, I'm sure all of us, we've started to do like in-person things. We've kind of gone into this more, um, you know, I don't want to say new normal, but, (laughs) you know, we're in this next phase. A new paradigm, a new paradigm. I like that. Oh, new paradigm. I can't take credit for it. No, it's a good phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, But like recharging, I know I need like my time to just kind of be back at a certain energy level. And like, that's meant that I haven't just said yes. The power of saying no, when you don't want to just be around people or you want to be around people who support what you're doing. Like that's meant a lot to know I don't have to just say yes when someone asks me to do something. Like, and I think especially Shoshana, you being the founder of Suffolk Progressives, you could give us definitely, how do you handle all those obligations? Cause I know there's a lot of work that's asked of you. I've done, I've gotten better recently. I've done a terrible job of it. Um, like, I think, you know, like I felt like responsible for being everywhere and doing everything and being all things to all people because there are so many issues to support and so many people who are work, doing really good work. And they're like, Hey, come to this thing, come to that thing. And I actually found myself super scattered. And I think that when I took this new job just about three months ago at Citizen Action, and it was my return to a full-time position after being like part-time in a bunch of places and being a stay-at-home parent, I was like, wait, I got to step back. I got to be able to say to people, I can't make this meeting or I can do some really like light lift work. Like I can make some calls or postcards, but I can't be at every meeting or I can't be the union officer anymore, or no, I can't be on the contract negotiations team because that's all volunteer stuff. And I have to prioritize. And it was, my husband's like, you're going to feel so much better when you act. He's like, you're actually going to feel like you have less work, Shoshana. And Mm -hmm. it's true. It's true. Like I, it, it was, I think, you know, being someone, I'm an adjunct at Stony Brook. And when I, when I left full-time work, when my daughter was born over the last few years, I think I, because I was like, oh, I'm part-time, I'm part-time. I could do this. I could do that. I suddenly like built myself up into like a whole other, you know, volunteer full-time job. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's been a really good learning curve for me to be able to be like, no, I, I can't, I can't. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry. And I support you, but I can't be there. I'm sorry. And I'm getting better, but it, it, it took a lot of messing it up, honestly. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And knowing that, you know, the people that you're around, like, I understand when someone can't do something because I, 
reflect, well, I can't be everywhere at once. And also I think, you know, talk about getting into this next point um, is what I learned. And I see this when I check your, well, when I check the Suffolk progressive social media, um, especially on Facebook, it means a lot when I see conversations, like you don't have to be at a in-person action to still find your activist spirit. And that's where in my education, like you've heard, like this podcast, I bring in so many conversations, whether it be about what does cancel culture mean, whether it be about, you know, what does LGBTQ literature look like right now or reality TV? Like, I feel I'm really interested in just bringing more arts and culture to the public who have felt like they've been locked out of these conversations because they're behind paywalls or they have to enroll in a university. And it's like, well, if I'm about to have a PhD, why am I doing what I'm doing if I can't speak to communities? Like that's mm. just where my heart goes is I want us to have a more infor informed public um, who has more literary discussions because I think, you know, talk about board of ed meetings. I think a lot of it is just not seeing representation or knowing these people who are from different backgrounds. Um, yeah. I mean, so I there's my heart. You cancel what you're afraid of. When I think about like last summer mm -hmm. in my school district, uh, there was a group of parents whose kids weren't even in the class that was reading this book called mm. Persepolis, which is like, mm. you know, it's an incredible book. It's a great, you know, just from on so many levels. And First of all, I had never heard of the book. So I was like, I'm going to go read whatever it is they've got, you know, so fired up about. And I was like, first of all, I learned so much about the Islamic revolution that I didn't know. And it's so beautifully drawn. And, you know, the thing I kept thinking about was this is so much of what we're not learning in school right here. You know, like when we think about what we learn about Iran, it is, you know, it is so narrow and it is based out of U.S. foreign policy and self-interest. And this was another story. And I was like, you know, we spent, we have spent so much time and money and lost like life and treasure in the Middle East. How do we not understand this better? And that was, for me, I was like, this is why you got to read this book is it just mm -hmm. gives you, it gives you a kid's perspective. And it's reframing. Yeah. And it's actually, a far more interesting way of learning about it than the way I think, you know, we're, than the information we're given. And it's fear. It's fear for yeah. so many people. And I think some of it is, you know, if you never meet people, if you've never met someone from Iran or you've never met a Muslim person, like maybe like that's, you know, the let you, it, it's, it's a lens of fear. And I understand fear, but I don't think it should be what dictates our, you know, educational policy or curriculum. Yeah. Well, and I kind of feel like I know you and Sarah were both talking about feeling a little unsettled. I guess I don't feel that right now. Not like because I'm, you know, living in some uh, maybe Alice in Wonderland universe. But um, I think it's because I've found that, oh, OK, I'm living moment to moment and every day. I'm resetting the table for myself. Like I always start my morning with a mantra that I write down and I'm like, OK, what are you going to focus on? So like for today, it's to focus on our conversation together and this empowering energy and space to that we're all a part of. And I guess that's getting me through, like knowing that's enough, right? Like this is more than enough. And just being appreciate, appreciative of anything I get to do outside of that space. And um, 
you know, <laughs> maybe that'll resonate, but it's not like I don't have times where I also have self-doubt. We all, you know, have self-doubt, but I think I can feel my authenticity now in everything I do. And to me, that's a part of activism is being confident in who you are and knowing like others are going to challenge you, but you have every right to just say, well, you know what? That kind of pushed past my boundary. Can we talk about that? Like not trying to mm -hmm. conform to what others expect of you. Well, this is deep. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that, I love been, this. That's been a big lesson. That's been a big lesson is to be able to just be like, there are even like-minded people who aren't going to like you. You know yes. what I mean? Like that, and I've just sort of been like, all right, okay, you know? I feel like once you accept that, it's a game changer. Yeah, I mean, cause I think I used to get so upset. I mean, I, I there are plenty of people with opposing ideologies who don't like me and that doesn't surprise me, but it's like, you know, when, when we've gotten into those contentious conversations in leftist spaces, like I, I that hurts in a different way. And I think mm -hmm. I've just sort of accepted that's part of the, it's part of the deal. Yeah. And I mean, I know we're almost out of our time. Okay. We're going to have to continue this like yeah, this again a in a few months. I think this might be like a recurring it's educator a corner. Yeah, I love this. Here. this, but I, love this. I think it's just what I love to hear is we've all been processing these ideas ourselves and coming together to share this community is so important because, well, just to bring an example, I remember seeing um, on Suffolk progressives, this message where someone was saying, if you're not responding or writing any messages, you shouldn't be part of this community. And it actually really hurt me. Not this person didn't hurt me. Cause again, Anything that's written down, I see as a different communication than us talking right now. Cause I do, it is a different format. Um, but it hurt me because so many of us are just looking to see that others are sharing ideas and we're learning. And sometimes we wanna take a step back and let others contribute when you, know, you don't wanna be the dominant voice. Or I'm concerned about that sometimes. I don't wanna just, have my male voice like okay i'm now coming in like let's get <laughs> to the let's get to work everyone and um it meant a lot to see that so many contributed to that shoshana like brought in well i'm here and i feel i'm learning more by just listening so i was glad others spoke yeah, up and i think it's not always safe for everybody like i think a lot about my friends who are public school teachers who are like, I have to be really quiet because the mm -hmm. district I teach in, because I'm not tenured, because a million different reasons. And, you know- I could even speak to a, that yeah. on a personal level on another podcast episode, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there are so many people who being able to speak up without fear of repercussion is privilege. And I recognize mm -hmm. that everybody's in that space. Yeah, so yeah. No. There are times you do just read and that's okay. Exactly. Well, and I think, you know, I'm sure I, um, sociologists could, and I'm sure they already are. I'm sure there's work on these backlashes with, um, you know, progressive politics or LGBTQ representation, um, you know, people of color and their narratives being assigned. I'm sure there's so many studies being done, like why is it happening in certain board of eds and not others? I mean, a lot of that in my opinion is segregated neighborhoods 
Mm, 100%. Um, number one. Um, everyone being a case study of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've seen, like, I, I've been curious. Oh, here are the Long Island towns that people are opening their arms to it. And I'm like, oh, they're also, there's a lot of commuters to the city. Or, like, it, it, they start to follow trends, these towns that, you know, are more open to difficult conversations, we'll call them. Um, but yeah, it's not a one size fits all. And I also think it's wonderful, Shoshana, to see what you've built and how many others come from so many different professions in Suffolk progressives. Yeah. And I love that there isn't, I never fe- felt when I entered that space or, and I still enter, I'm not going to like not enter again, but, um, I never feel that you know, a conversation's off the table. Like as long as someone's coming to learn, right? It's that intentionality of, I know all of us talk to people who don't think politically like us. I mean, I have really, you know, close friends who have had different uh, political affinities. I wouldn't say that they um, are part of the backlash that we're talking about, Um, but it's nice when you can actually just have open conversations and you know, that's where Shoshana, you're such a good example of a space where, you know, it's called Suffolk progressives, but look at all the conversations that are happening. Like, it's not just coming, like you have to check the box that you voted for so-and-so and that's important. And that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know there are folks who are like, well, it's not really progressive then. And I'm like, well, it's Suffolk County. So take what you can get friends. Like, well, and and you don't want to box people out either. I I think. Yeah. Right. I've noticed from the more left part of the whole spectrum, but you know, I mean, I think that I actually have found that when you work on issues, as opposed to, I voted for this candidate, Mm -hmm. there's a lot more overlap. And I mean, I would say Mm -hmm. that, you know, I have done a lot of really good work that I'm proud of with, of people, you know, who in a primary, we never vote the same way but we both really cared about, you know, the redistricting process. So we came together on that issue. And I think that when we look at the world that way, it's much easier to, to get things done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, do we have just like a few more minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. I don't want to take our Saturday, but um, that's resonating a lot, Shoshana, because um, I'm not going to say the past president's name. I don't like to, um, but like you said, what you teach really shows, I think it shows your authenticity. It shows who you, what you value. I mean, you said that Shoshana, and that's such a profound statement because I've met people, not in the edu, well, I think as an educator, you're always wearing that hat. Like, even if we want to get rid of it, it's just part of the psyche. Um, but yeah, I've met people who voted for the last president and I've become really close to them. and. I didn't, that wasn't the first entry point, right? Wasn't, oh, who did you vote for? Like, that's usually not how a conversation, I like to start a discussion. But um, it's been wonderful though to see, especially on social media, like them, they'll see all the LGBTQ authors I read or, you know, me dancing or whatever it may be, that they know someone who's so open about his sexuality and they start to ask me, just questions, I think, to learn. Like, it's never, 
again, I always come from someone's intentionality. So when they want to learn, like that's a really exciting moment. And yeah, I've been surprised how many back and forth generative discussions I've had with people who I thought, oh, I would never talk to so-and-so, but then, you know, you get in spaces where you do talk to people who think differently. And those are the moments that actually, I think, have made me rethink sometimes what I hold on to and maybe letting go of wanting to categorize my own political opinions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you witnessed that a lot in your own life, Shoshana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, for me, like I, I, at this point, I kind of, even though electoral politics are, you know, I think what brought us here, I don't love electoral politics. I love issues because yes. I think the issues speak so much better to people's lived experiences. And I think you can tell a better story and create more connections over what was someone's healthcare experience like or their educational experience or, you know, growing up without clean water that resonates to me so much more, you know, than like Bernie and Hillary. And I, I said, as like someone who loves Bernie Sanders. Like, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's a much more interesting and like furthers connections than electoral politics. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was, you know, in the Bernie camp, yeah. Um, I don't make a secret. I don't think anyone <laughs> questions Forever. who I vote for, but uh, like, sometimes I think, oh, my students, they don't know who I vote for. But again, it comes from, I think just the energy, but again, I'm, you know, Sarah's known me a while. I don't like to shut down conversation. It actually saddens me if I have to like, if I walk away from someone and I feel like I've actually let myself down if I can't have a back and forth. And it's only happened a few times where I've tried to talk about another side and bringing in a progressive opinion, but someone tried to categorize me as a Democrat and they're like, ended the conversation there. And I'm like, but wait, that's not even how I see myself. Like, I don't <laughs> like- I'm a Democrat know, for the yeah. primaries. Like, that's it, that's it. <laughs> yeah, but it's, 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 you know, I'm sure, all of us, the three of us have felt when someone is boxing you in and really trying to categorize who you are because yeah. they don't want to hear a differing opinion. And, you know, maybe as we conclude, I want to, you know, of course, have you and Sarah have the last words about, you know, where do you see the work you do, Shoshana, heading as we go into the summer, like what are maybe your folk, what are you focusing on right now? What are some issues you're really okay. investing in? So, I mean, I think for me, like in my work, um, the work I do at Citizen Action is all around um, education policy and organizing. So one of the things I'm spending a lot of time right now on is this bill called Solutions Not Suspensions, which gets rid of suspensions for little kids, like five to eight year olds, and then comes, asks each school district and each building to come up with alternatives to suspensions. That's not the first place we go, that there's more restorative justice methods of discipline in our schools. And that's something that, you know, I think is really important. And particularly knowing that black and brown students are more likely to be suspended and have more punitive punishment. So being able to organize in that sphere is really important. And like I'm going up on Tuesday with Make the Road New York with their youth to, to lobby. And then like on the music setting, 
Um, I piloted this like last month with a community choir that was coming back for the first time since COVID. And we did a lot of music from the Justice Choir songbook, which is really simple and accessible. And like, I was like, I would love to do just like a Justice Choir event somewhere this summer. I have to like, once I can get through all my, the, the, the legislative session, that's my big project, um, where we can bring in people like, even if they, you know, don't consider themselves singers, you know, even if like they're not musicians, they don't read music, can we come in and do some sort of like community work based around music and, you know, make it as like just inclusive as possible, which is what, you know, the Justice Choir movement is supposed to be about. So that's something I want to do this summer. Oh, that's ex- well, let us know, Shoshana. Yeah, I want to yeah, I, I want to see like, this. really think it through. But yes. OK. OK. And, um, you know, Sarah, what is something coming away from this conversation that you're pondering or I don't know, like how how are you checking in right now? Wow. Um, So as always, there are a lot of thoughts swimming through my mind. And um, one of the biggest uh, takeaways that I've been reflecting on um, lately is um, not putting ourselves in boxes. And I think the conversation we're just having regarding, you know, uh, politics, it's so... um, feel like it's easy for us to put ourselves in boxes saying, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm queer, I'm this and that. And I think sometimes we need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I'm not saying that labels aren't important, but lately I've just been getting a lot of these downloads, like mentally that life is just so like, expansive and multifaceted and there's so much more that we're not seeing because we're so busy if that makes any sense mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of okay. sense and <laughs> wait I would not do my interviewer job justice Shoshana if I did not ask the question on everyone's mind and this is going to be Andrew being a little shady but Shoshana Hershkowitz can you go on the record if you will ever run as a House of Representatives candidate? Not anytime soon. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, and I can understand that decision. No, no, but. my kids are little. And quite honestly, I think, and I mean, I'll just be fully on the record here. I think that the Democratic Party um, in New York and especially in Suffolk County lacks the infrastructure to help a candidate win. So I'm not going to put myself on the line and put my family on the line when the house is on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, on that, that no, 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 she, Shoshana has set the record straight. Um, but you know, who knows what will happen in the next few years. I mean, I'm hoping, you know, I see. I'm Jen- hoping I don't have to because somebody else flips that seat. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, and also, you know, I think to end on Shoshana, what you talked about with your two children, and how much they're open to discussions. And I, I carry that with me when I see my students and just conversations that I used to have to really work hard to get at, like sexuality, but how now it's at, it's on the surface and actually the students are bringing it out of the water. Like they want to talk about these. And if you don't talk about it as an educator, it's actually now something that the students are going to push back in a good way. They want to hear these, you know, discussions that are so important. So on that note, 
Shoshana, this has been wonderful. Yeah, we're going to do this again. We're going to do it again because I know we could keep yeah. There's so much more we could discuss. And this was so lovely. Yes. Yeah, so this Sarah, was, this was a great Saturday afternoon. It was wonderful. And I can't wait to bring you both back again. Um, yeah. And thank you to the listeners out there. I hope, you know, you all who are educators or anyone out there, whatever you learned from this, please reach out um, with kind words, please. <laughs> um, only have had a few trolling comments, but. I usually, you know, laugh at, well, we won't touch that. That's going to be on the next podcast on how to deal with those who have, you know, opinions that are contrary to yours. But, you know, I think just to thank you, Shoshana, to thank Sarah, and we'll be back again with Educator's Corner. So Ooh, I like that. Awesome. There you go. So bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director. Our team includes Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, Nicole Arguello, our Marketing Assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our Editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's Mary. Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays.